The Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they are not for you to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. After saying this, he was taken up into a cloud while they were watching, and they could no longer see him. As they strained to see him rising into heaven, two white-robed men suddenly stood among them. Men of Galilee, they said, why are you standing here staring into heaven? Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, but someday he will return from heaven in the same way you saw him go. Someday he'll return from heaven in the same way you saw him go. Well, today we're starting out a mini-series called The End, looking at the end times and what the Bible has to say about it. You know, I was looking online for various uh, predictions there's been about the end of the world, and you know some of these. And believe it or not, there's a Wikipedia page titled, List of Dates Predicted for Apocalyptic Events. And there's no less than 125 events that have been predicted when the end of the world would come. The most recent of them is in 20 days. Y'all better watch out. May 13th. Yep. I don't know why that date, but uh, we've all heard the predictions. How many of you guys remember Y2K? Y2K, man, some of y'all don't know about that. December 31st, 1999, they're like, when the clock strikes midnight, the world's going to blow up, <laughs> basically, right? People were buying water, canned foods, all our computers were supposed to go down, electrical grids, and, and nothing happened, right? You guys remember uh, 2012, the Mayan calendar? Yes, December 21st, the Mayans predicted the world would end. And as we see, there's always events in the world that make us wonder, though. Man, what, what's going to take place? We hear the wars. We hear about the, the atrocities in Syria. In past days, it was the Holocaust, World Wars I and II. There are events in our days, even to the present day, with North Korea and, and Iran, nuclear talks, and we're like, God, what's going on? There are events in our world, like, like November 2nd, 2016, that make you think the end of the world is coming to an end. You guys remember November 2nd, 2016? It's the day the Cubs won the World Series. You're like, surely things are coming to an end now. We've all got curiosities about it. There was a movie called Armageddon some years ago and how these guys were going to save the world. But, you know, a lot of us, we do wonder, what's it going to be like? In the middle of the 20th century, the 1950s forward, there was a large movement where they had like prophecy conferences where they would open the scriptures and just say, okay, what, what does the Bible teach about the end times? But what ended up happening in a lot of these uh, uh, traditions is that there became such an overemphasis on the end of the world, and that's all people began to talk about and draw lines in the sand and saying, if you don't believe my belief on the end times, you might not be with me at the end. And people had those extreme views. And so the pendulum was on that extreme side where, where this is what it says. I'm going to predict that things almost to a T. And if you don't agree, you're, you're someone who's cast out to hell. And then people realize, man, look, that's not too gracious. 
And, and then the pendulum has swung all the way to the opposite side where we don't talk about the end times much anymore. In fact, I was uh, visiting an older couple at the brook here this past week, and, and they, they asked me, they said, you know, first they said, we're excited about this series, but then they asked, uh, how many of the people you think of the church really have a, an idea of what the Bible t- talks about with the end times? And I thought, you know, I, I'm going to assume probably 98% don't know because we don't talk about it. Uh, and there's reasons we don't sometimes. Yes, it's the extremes that we experience, but also because, frankly, it's intimidating. It's intimidating words like millennium, rapture, great tribulation, antichrist. Like, what's all that about? 666. And there's intimidating texts. You ever try to read the book of Revelation on your own? You're like, there's a beast with seven horns coming from the sea who will be, receive a mortal wound and trick people and then be thrown in a lake of fire. It's like, what, you know? And so, so there's, there's scriptures where you're like, that's an intimidating passage. Or, or, or different things in the book of Daniel. And you're like, I don't, I don't, yeah, I don't know about that. I'm going to stick to the book of James. I'm going to read that. You know, and other books are a lot more easier to understand. And so there's intimidating terms, intimidating texts. And then there's intimidating viewpoints. I listened to a debate, a two-hour debate by three different scholars, all of them with PhDs, all of them with different opinions on the end times. And for two hours, they debated how, one, how the other was wrong and they were right. They were very gracious. They were all friends. But at the end, they said, all right, what's a word of encouragement you can get to someone who's watching who says, you study this for a living and you can't come to an agreement. Why even bother? And so sometimes we just throw in the towel saying, they can't figure it out. Why bother trying to figure it out? But what I want to caution you is saying, that's not the right approach here. Because there's a reason God gave it to us to study. There's a reason the Bible has it there. Because it's in the Bible, it is our obligation to say, God, what do you mean by this? If you are a Christian today, and by Christian we mean someone who's put their faith in Jesus for their forgiveness, and someone who's now choosing to live for Jesus because he is the master of their lives. If you're a Christian today, then this right here is the authoritative word in your life. And if it's in here, we have an obligation and a privilege to say, God, what have you got to say about this? Another reason why it's important for us to study is every time the Bible talks about end time events, it's followed by a word of exhortation, a, a command, a charge for us. Take, for instance, the passage that Jeremy read. It ended, therefore, encourage one another with these words. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 then says, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you're doing. 1 Corinthians 15.58, which talks about the resurrection and the end times, says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. Or Mark 13.23, Jesus says, Therefore, be on guard. I have told you all these things beforehand. Or 1 John 3, 3 says, everyone who has this hope purifies himself as he is pure. You see, the Bible connects end times events and teachings saying, hey, by the way, this is supposed to encourage you and challenge you and spur you on today. So to say, I'm not going to deal with those passages because they're hard, you're actually withholding from yourself a source of your encouragement for your Christian life. You see, end-time prophecies have a way of thawing out 
the cold heart that develops through cynicism and apathy because of life's wintry rhythms. What I mean is this. We could become very cynical about the end times, very apathetic, like, ah, whatever, I'm going to die, I'm going to go to heaven, it's, it's going to be like that. And our hearts become to be, start growing cold. And that really actually is a problem. Cynicism says, where is Jesus? People have been talking about him coming back for 2,000 years. At least 125 of them predicted it. So why bother? And apathy says, why bother? And I'm actually not going to care. But you know, Peter talks about this in 2 Peter chapter 3. He says, knowing, first, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say this. Hear this. He says this. That these people are going to say, where is the promise of his coming? Basically saying, didn't Jesus say he's going to come back? He seems to be dragging his feet. Maybe if you're like me, there's been times I've wondered, Jesus, it's been 2,000 years. It seems like you're taking a little long. And then Peter goes on to say, but do not overlook this one fact, my beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one, as one day. Peter's like, it's been two days for God. You're 2,000 years. But then he says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness, but rather he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach Repentance. Jesus hasn't come back yet because he's allowing time for you if you've yet to trust in him so that you can trust in him. If you're not a Christian today, if you've never given your life to Jesus, if he came back at this moment, that's bad news for you. And every day he lingers. He says, it's an extra day for you to turn to me. Every day he lingers, Christian. It's a day for you to open your mouth and share with another. Because then Peter says this, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. You don't know when it's going to happen, but it's going to happen. So that's why Christians throughout the generations have said, God, I'm not going to become cynical. I'm not going to become apathetic, but I'm going to stay on point here and be about your work. Cynicism and apathy are weeds in the garden of faith. They will cause you to not care about people, not care about what God is doing. But the truth of the matter is this. At this moment, you are closer to the return of Jesus than anyone has ever been in the history of humankind. Let that soak in. At this moment, Jesus is closer to returning than he's ever been since the day he ascended into heaven. That should spur you on. To borrow a phrase from black social activists, the church needs to get woke about the end times. We we need to get schooled in it and learn a thing or two. I've been working through the book of Matthew here, and I told you guys some weeks ago that we're going to leapfrog Matthew, I'm sorry, Mark. We're going to leapfrog Mark 13. And today I'm not, I'm not going to dig into it. I'm not going to dive into it just yet. But I do want you to turn there. Well, you turn to book, book of Mark chapter 13, and on the Bible is in front of you. That's page 849. 849. Mark chapter 13. 
I'm going to look here just briefly with y'all, and then we're going to turn to the book of 1 Thessalonians, and I'll give you directions when we get there. See, in the book of Mark chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, Jesus was, had just come out of the temple. He just, t- just told people, look, man, I'm not, God's not pleased in the way people are worshiping him. They're, they're caught up in this show. They're caught up in, in, in how things look, but their hearts aren't there. And as they're leaving this amazing temple that Herod built, chapter 13, verse 1, it says, And as he came out of the temple, one of the disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. They're looking at that saying, that's some amazing architecture. And Jesus said, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that would not be thrown down. Again, Jesus is giving a sobering word. You're impressed by this, but I'm going to let you know that's all going to come down. It's going to get destroyed. 70, AD 70, the, the Roman armies would come into Jerusalem and destroy the temple, fulfilling Jesus' words. Jesus talks about that occasion here in Mark 13 of what that's going to be like. But he then uses it as as an opportunity to say, but you know what? As bad as those days are, there's going to be a great tribulation, a a great day of trial that is still to come. And and he wants to instruct them about that great tribulation. Next week, we're going to look at the tribulation, those years of of great suffering. But today, we're going to look at what Jesus is going to do about his church and how that inspires us in our lives now. So with that being said, let, let's go over to the book of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, and that's page 987 in the Pew Bibles in front of you. Now, there are many debates about what Jesus' coming is going to look like, and, I've, and I could be honest with you guys. This week, I was scratching my head a few times. I've been taught, I've been instructed, I've studied for myself, but there's still some times where I approach the scriptures and I'm saying, yeah, but I could see it meaning this thing too, and I kind of wrestle there. So you need to know that some of the things that I'm going to say today I hold with an open hand. Uh, But I'm going to give you a starting point, which you're going to say, all right, this is where we're going to start, this is is the belief I'm going to work with of his return, and I'm going to get to the text myself and see what scripture has to say moving forward from here. And this is what we're gonna, I'm going to teach here. You see, there are various passages like the one we're about to look at that give us this overwhelming sense that Jesus is going to come back at any moment. And it's this word called imminence, which simply means it's imminent. His return is coming at any moment when you don't know. And my belief is that Jesus is going to come at any moment to bring his church up to meet him in the clouds. And that day marks the beginning of the end, so to speak. Because that moment will be followed by seven years of tribulation where there'll be great suffering on earth, where there'll be an antichrist, the mark of the beast, and all these things take place. And again, we'll look at that next week. And at the end of those seven years, Jesus is going to have his second coming where he actually comes and comes on this earth. Not just to take us in the air. He's going to come down to this earth and there's going to be an Armageddon, a war that's going to last like that. And Jesus is going to establish his kingdom on this earth for a thousand years. And he will reign on this earth for a thousand years, Revelation 20 tells us. And at the end of the thousand years, he's going to let Satan be released from his bondage. And it ultimately cast him into the lake of fire for all of eternity. And at that moment, our eternal life with our great Savior begins here on this earth, redeemed. 
But as I just mentioned, the beginning of that comes with Jesus taking his church. And that's what we're going to talk about today, how to look to the skies. Tony Evans, a preacher out in Texas, says too many of us are worried about the undertaker, and we tend to neglect, he says, the upper taker. <laughs> All right, that's, that's classic Tony Evans. We, we think about our death a lot, but do we think about the return of Jesus? And this passage in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18 is perhaps the primary text on this very matter. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read the text. I'm going to give some exposition of it. I'm going to explain some of it. And then I'm going to look at six ways that this passage encourages us. So you guys ready for that? Mark chapter, I'm sorry, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. This is what God's word says. But we do not want you to be uninformed. Say uninformed. Uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, we celebrated that last week. This is why it's important, in part. Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep, which is death. Verse 15. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, say alive, alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. And then verse 18, this is important. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Paul wrote these words to a church in Thessaloniki, or modern-day Thessaloniki, Thessalonica back then. A church that was wondering what to do about the fact that their brothers and sisters in Jesus had died. What's going to happen to them now? What's going to go on? And Paul's like, here, let, let, let me teach you. Let me show you what, what Jesus is going to do here. And he starts out saying, do not be uninformed. I, I don't want you to be uninformed. And I think about that word uninformed, I think that's what a lot of us tend to be about the last days. We're uninformed. But to be informed brings about an encouragement, verse 18. To be uninformed withholds from us the encouragement that verse 18 talks about. So I want us to be informed. I don't want us to be uninformed. I want us to learn how to pound on the scripture and say, God, what does this mean? Help me understand, God. To pray this thing through and not say, God, you know what? People smarter than me can't figure this out. I'm not trying. That's not an option for us. Unless you don't want to be encouraged. Let's dig. He says, I don't want you to be uninformed about those who have fallen asleep. This word fallen, these words fallen asleep, some people take this to mean that when Christians die, their soul only sleeps, but they're not really dead. Uh, but that's just not the way we can understand it. It's because in John chapter 11, verse 11, Jesus says about his friend Lazarus to his disciples, Lazarus has fallen asleep. And the disciples are like, well, let's go wake him up. And then Jesus says in verse 14 of, of John chapter 11, he's like, all right, Lazarus has died. All right, I'm, I'm going to speak this very plainly. 
so you're like, well, why not just say that those who are dead? All right, why even say fallen asleep? Because I, I think what Paul, what Jesus was helping us see is that for the follower of Jesus, death is not permanent. It's like God's going to wake us up. Yes, we're dead. Yes, we will die. We will all die unless Jesus comes back sooner than that. But it's not permanent for those who are children of God. And Paul picks up on that same language. I don't want you to be uninformed about those who've fallen asleep, those who've died. Because when you're uninformed, you grieve their death as if you have no hope. See, everyone will grieve death. We do. It doesn't matter how positive everything around it is, we grieve death. Death is painful. No one loves death. Especially the closer someone is to us. And some of us have tasted of that in the most difficult of ways. And I love what God's saying here through his word. Is he's not dismissing our grief. He's just saying, as a follower of Jesus, for those who've died as followers of Jesus, our grief is altogether different. Because our grief is as is our death. It is temporary. It's temporary. And so Paul's like, if you're uninformed, you grieve without hope. But if you're informed, you grieve in hope. You grieve in hope. He goes on to say here, for since we believe Jesus died and rose, so we will also rise from the dead. There's a one-to-one correlation. If Jesus' tomb is still full, your tomb will always be full. But if Jesus' tomb is empty, you're going to walk about that grave one day and meet the Lord in the clouds. He says in verse 15, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. He's like, there's an order to things. God's got a plan. We don't know when Jesus is coming back, but if you are alive on this earth, as a follower of Jesus, when he comes back, Paul's saying, hey, know this, that those who have died in faith will be resurrected first, and then us who are alive will meet them in the air. That's what Paul's saying, that God has an order to the resurrections here, that those who are dead will rise first, and those who are alive will be resurrected afterward. And this is how it all takes place, verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command. The Lord himself, notice those words. See, the Lord himself is to help us see, this is not some phantom, this is not Casper the friendly Jesus here. Jesus is coming back bodily, physically, tangibly, the same way he rose from the dead, the same way he ascended to the heavens, is the same way he will descend from the heavens. The Lord himself, Paul says, will come back with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. It's going to be loud. It's going to be unmistakable. You're not going to be like, man, I think Jesus might have came back yesterday and I missed it. It ain't going to happen. It ain't going to happen. When he comes, you will hear his voice. It, it just drips with this John 11 part where, where Lazarus is in the, in, the, in the grave. And Jesus walks up. He says, roll away the stone. And they're like, he's been dead for four days. It's going to smell. And Jesus says three words, Lazarus, come out. And one day, I love to think that his name, that his voice will say your name, my name, and say, come out. If you're a child of God today, get up out of that grave. I told you in John 14, 
that I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. And I told you that once it's prepared, I'm coming back for you. And I'm not slow to fulfill my promises at some count slowness. You see, God, God fulfilled all the promises of Jesus' first coming. He said he'd come as a descendant of David, born of a virgin, live a perfect life, be betrayed by his friends, suffer unjustly with no words on his mouth to argue his case, be crucified, and as, as Psalm 16 says, that he will raise up from the dead. Jesus' first coming was fulfilled to a T. What makes us think that his second will not be? He's coming back. He's coming back. He's going to tell you, come on out. Meet me here in the clouds. The voice of an archangel, the trumpet of God. The king is coming. And you're going to hear it. You're going to hear it. It says that the dead in Christ, then at the end of verse 16, will rise first. There's two words there that make an eternity of a difference. In Christ. Not every dead person, but the dead in Christ. Not everyone will meet Jesus in the clouds. Not everyone's going to heaven. It's the dead in Christ. And by in Christ, he means those who said, Jesus, I am going to clothe myself with your righteousness because I believe that on the cross, you clothed yourself with my sin. And there was an exchange of garments, so to speak. And so the judgment I deserve because of my sin, you took it, Jesus. And the righteousness that you have because of your perfection, you've given to me, Jesus. And now I am found in Christ. And if I'm in Christ, I'm going to meet him in the air. I love how sports teams uh, have gotten to, gotten to the tradition of taking the names off the back of their jerseys. Have you seen that? And a lot of teams say, you know, it's not about the name on the back of the jersey, but about the name on the front of the jersey. And what they want to communicate is when you wear our team's uniform, you represent the team, and it's no longer about you, but it's about something different here. And when we're clothed in Christ, it's not about you, but about the one you represent that you're clothed with. It is Jesus. And it's because of his name, not the one on the back of your jersey, it's team Jesus that gets you into the clouds. So if you're not on team Jesus, that's not for you. And God is not coming back yet because he wants you on team Jesus. He wants you there. Maybe he's stirring in your heart right now and you say, man, I never saw it that way. I never realized that me keeping God at arm's length, me refusing to live my life for Jesus, actually has implications beyond this life. And we want you to trust in him today. Tomorrow ain't promised for you. And not promised for me. We don't know when Jesus is coming back. But we want you to know where you're going when he does. And it comes through faith in him. When you say, God, I've sinned. I'm sorry. Forgive me. I know the mess. I put my faith in Jesus. I want to live for you. God says, you're forgiven. You become adopted in his family. You're clothed in Jesus' righteousness. And then you are found in Christ. We want you to do that. At the end of our sermon, I'm going to have a prayer team come up here in the front and in the back. And they want to pray with you if that's where you want to be. 
And they want to walk with you through that. Paul says the dead in Christ will rise first. Those who are on team Jesus and the rest of us who are alive on this earth will then meet him together in the air. I love that word together, caught up together in verse 17. Together, together. You and I have got people in our lives that we've loved dearly who know Jesus, who've gone to be with him. The Bible says to be absent from the bodies, be present with the Lord. So they're with Jesus in this intermediate place. But when that trumpet sounds, we'll be back with them together with Jesus. That's reason for joy. So then Paul concludes there and says, therefore encourage one another with these words. So I want to ask you, how do these words encourage you today? Well, I want to say there's at least six ways. Actually, five. I read my notes wrong. Five ways that this passage encourages us. And there's probably more. The first one is this. And they all start with the letter R. It's the word resurrection. Be encouraged, child of God. Death is not final. Your death is not final. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, Oh, death, where's your victory? He's taunting death. Oh, death, where's your sting? You thought you were all big and bad about it. What you got now when Jesus calls us out of the grave? Resurrection gives us hope. That's the first R. The second R is reunion. To be caught up together with the saints of the past. To meet the Lord in the clouds. To to be resurrected there with Peter, James, and John, and Mary, and Martha, and the other saints, those family members, those who trailblazed the faith before you, those great, great, great grandparents who put a line in the sand and say, I'm following Jesus, to be caught up with them. There's a reunion. There's also the return. That's the third word. The fact that Jesus is true on his words. That's encouraging. God fulfilled it the first time. He'll fulfill it the second time. So it's the resurrection, it's the reunion, it's the return. And the fourth one is to remain. I love how Paul says that in verse 17. And so we will always be with the Lord. I was thinking about that this week. You know, when we come to worship Jesus here at the brook, and when we're here, there's times where you just sense God's presence in sweet ways. Sometimes you're just brought down and you just got to take a seat and bow your head. Sometimes you're brought to tears. Sometimes you express it with arms raised. Sometimes you just, it's just in your heart just crying out because you sense God's presence and you love it and you love it and you love it. But you've never experienced it perfectly. As sweetest, as sweet, as sweet as it's ever been, it's been experienced in a broken world with a broken person, with an unredeemed, resurrected body. But when Jesus resurrects us. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that we will be changed. There's going to be a transformation that takes place in our ascent. Your your mortal body, the broken body, will be transformed. What's perishable will become imperishable in that moment. And then you will be with the Lord forever in perfect harmony with his presence in ways you've never, ever experienced on this earth. Those words ought to encourage us. His resurrection, his return, the reunion to remain. And then these words encourage us because they refine us. They refine us. To, to unpack this, I want us to jump to the book of 1 John here. 
First John chapter 2, verses 18 to chapter 3, verse 3. And again, if you've got a Bible in front of you, it's this, one of the last books of the Bible, a few books before Revelation, it's tiny, page 1021 in your pew Bible. I love this passage in 1 John. I'm going to read a portion, I'm going to summarize a portion, but I'm going to show you how the return of Jesus refines us and how that is an encouragement. 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, it says, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come, therefore we know it is the last hour. There are people in our world who are anti-Christ. And there will come a day where there is one who is the prototypical Antichrist in the Great Tribulation. We'll talk about that. But then drop down to verse 28. As, As John talks about the Antichrist, these last days that we're in, he says, and now little children. He's an old man, and he'd say that to people. He calls you little children. He's probably about 90 years old at this point. He says, and now little children, abide in him. So that, say so that. See, there's a purpose here. When he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. When Jesus comes back, are we going to be ashamed saying, I sat on my hands, wasted my time. I knew hell was real. I knew heaven was glorious. I knew you would come back at any moment, and I did nothing. Or will I say, God, with the best of my abilities, by the power of your spirit, I did not waste my life. He says, or will you shrink away in his coming? If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But, hear this, this is it. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as Jesus is pure. What John is saying here is that the hope of Jesus' return encourages us and refines us because we know the fact that he's coming back, it spurs us on to love him, to live for him, to say, what have I got to do with all this this sin in my life? Why, Why would I go to these lesser gods? Why would I waste my life pursuing other delights that don't satisfy? Jesus, I want to pursue you, and it refines you. It purifies you. And so when he comes, you'll be transformed, and that hope has a purifying effect. You see, the purpose of teachings on the end times is to thaw out a heart of apathy and cynicism and to say, Jesus, awaken me. And when we're informed, you're spurred on by the resurrection that's coming your way, by Jesus' return, by the reunion that you can remain with him forever, and that in this process, he refines you. So Paul says, therefore, encourage one another these words. We have a responsibility with urgency to talk about the last days, the end times, 
and be an encouragement to one another. So I think, from what I understand, this is next on God's agenda. And we don't know when it's going to happen. It's imminent. It's at any moment. It could happen in our lifetimes, and it may not. But regardless, one way way or another, it's here for your encouragement. And ultimately, you will be with him in glory if you put your faith in Jesus. When we believe it this way, talking about the end times isn't so scary. If you're not a follower of Jesus, it's terrifying. If we talk about the great tribulation next week, it's going to be very terrifying. But for for those of us who are in Christ, we know our eternal destiny. And this is why we could sing as we sang earlier today in that song, It Is Well. I love that last verse. He says, O Lord, haste the day. Make it happen quickly. Haste the day when my faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. I'm ready. The last verse of the Bible, would you turn there? Revelation chapter 22. Last page. Revelation 22. I'm going to close with this. When we see and hope in the beauty of his return, this life is seen differently, isn't it? All all the suffering you're experiencing all of a sudden feels very temporary. The the concerns in your life, you realize there's something more. See, God wants to ignite your faith through this so that we can hope in his return. We can long for it. And in Revelation chapter 20, verses 20 and 21, I love these closing words to the Bible, to the Revelation here. It says, he who testifies to these things, referring to Jesus, he says this, surely I am coming soon. And then John says this. Let's read these last portions together. It says, amen, come Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Can you say amen? Come Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. That's what Maranatha means. Lord, come and do your work. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, that the hope of the return of Jesus is a sure hope. And Jesus says, I am coming quickly. And yes, we declare, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And Lord, we don't say that, Lord, in in some sort of... uh, deterministic sense saying that we we hate our lives, we hate this world. But we just say that because we long for you. We we long to be remaining in you with resurrected bodies. But God, we also know that you haven't come back yet because you have a purpose in that. So for your children who are here in this room today, God, Help us see that we have an obligation to know and to teach and to tell others because every day is an expression of your grace and patience to those who don't know you. 
And for those who are here today, God, who've never repented of their sin, turned away from it and turned to you in forgiveness and seeking you and loving you, God, I pray that they wouldn't waste time and they would say, thank you, God, that you didn't come, that you didn't take me out because this moment is a moment you'll change me for eternity. Do it, we pray, God, please. Thaw out the cynicism, the apathy, create an encouraging hope and urgency within us. Soli Deo Gloria, we give you all the glory. Amen. Church, let's rise to our feet. Prayer team, when you come forward, please.